The art of self-reliance calls you to adventure, to develop your self-protection skills, to learn how to survive no matter where you find yourself, and to thrive amongst life's chaos. And now, here's your host, Dr. Rodney King. Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Art of Self-Reliance podcast. In this episode, I talk to Bob Doggerty. Bob served for 25 years as a CIA operations officer, 23 of those years in the field. This spanned the Middle East, Europe, South America, Central America, and the U.S., he developed, ran, and managed operations focused on counterterrorism, counterintelligence, and counter-narcotics targets. During his career, he worked against most major foreign terrorist groups that threatened the United States' interests. He also specialized in working against the Iranian and MENA target set. Several operations that he initiated resulted in the takedown of major terrorist networks and cells. In the private sector, Bob now concentrates on providing specialized consulting and training services to law enforcement, military, the private sector, and government clients. In this episode, we talk about advanced situational awareness as it pertains to successfully surviving and thriving in any environment, critical thinking skills and common sense street smarts, and a stoic-based philosophy in life that allows you to focus on what is truly important. The Art of Self-Reliance calls you to adventure, to develop your self-protection skills, to learn how to survive no matter where you find yourself, and to thrive amongst life's chaos. Here's my, my first question for you, Bob. I always try to start the, every episode like this. When you hear the words self-reliance, what does that mean to you? To me, self-reliance is you're your own person, right? Whether you're a man or a woman, you're your own person, you're independent. You can survive. You can deal with what's out there in the world. You you don't need a lot of help from other people. So I think that encompasses a a, a couple of things for a person. Physically, you're self-reliant. You're in good shape. You're in good health. Mentally, you're sharp. You're smart. You're aware of what's going on around you. You're engaging. And then I think there's a component of that you have fun as well with what you're doing, whether it's your work or your off time, that you're enjoying life because, right, that's a big component of life. And, and then the, the financial component that you're well off enough that you don't really have to rely on other people to help survive, right? So to me, self-reliant is someone who's pretty independent. They're smart. They're in good physical shape. They're engaged with the environment and people around them, and they can take care of themselves. Yeah, I love that. I mean, that's a really great summary which is a great segue into the topics we said we would discuss um, for this podcast. The first one is about advanced situational awareness. And let's just take into, into consideration that probably the person listening to this might not really understand what that means and have a lot of knowledge in that domain. So where would be a good starting point? Yeah, so advanced situational awareness is also called heuristics. And it basically deals with, and it was born out of, here in the U.S. at least, out of the <clears throat> Marine Corps Combat Hunter Program. And guys like Patrick Van Horn and other people have done a lot of good work. But look, advanced situational awareness, we all do it as human beings. We're all situationally aware of what's going on around us to some level. When, when I teach the class or I talk to people about advanced situational awareness, I'm talking about enhancing and supplementing what they're already doing, the senses that they already have. 
And really our situational awareness happens through our five senses, right? Sight, sound, hearing, touch, smell. And all of that is controlled by a little organ in our brain called the amygdala. And there's a lot of brain chemistry that goes along with this. But if you're in the professions that we're in, whether it's counterterrorism or, or intelligence or security or special operations, you have to know these things because that's part of your profession, right? To, to help you survive and thrive in any environment. And when we're talking about advanced situational awareness, the core of it is this, that in any given situation that you're in, you quickly establish a baseline environment of what is normal for whatever situation you're in. Whether you're sitting in this room doing a pod class, whether you're on an airplane, whether you're at your local supermarket, or whether you're in a foreign country that you've never been to before in a high-risk area, you have to quickly establish a baseline environment for what is normal. Once you do that, and by the way, that can be that can take five seconds, five minutes, five hours. You're always updating the baseline environment. Once you do that, then you look for anomalies in the baseline, things that stand out. Once you see an anomaly, there may not be an anomaly, but once you see an anomaly, then you ask yourself two questions, and this is really the key part of advanced situational awareness. And those two questions are, what is the most logical reason or explanation that I'm seeing this anomaly? Okay, and then the second question is, what is the worst case scenario reason that I'm seeing this anomaly? Once you quickly ask yourself those two questions in your mind and come up with whatever answer you think is the reason, then you decide on your course of action. And it's that quick. It's made to, advanced situational awareness is made to quickly assess an environment with limited information and decide on a course of action. So that's kind of the core of it. But you can obviously apply it to everything in your life, right? Active shooter, acts of terrorism, regular crime, military operations, special operations, and just regular citizens going out and walking around in their everyday life. So when I'm thinking about just the average person, especially in this day and age, and I'd like to get your take on this, what I notice is that there is no situational awareness. People are so unaware that it's quite frightening, actually. Yeah. They have their heads down in their phones, right? They have their heads down on their phones and they're not up. You know, it's one of the things we always talk about uh, in our jobs is like, keep your head up, keep looking around. That's advanced situational awareness. I'd be happy if people just did that, right? Um, but it's more than that. It's keeping your head up and looking around and then interpreting the environment around you. See, all humans share the same language. I don't mean the spoken language, but I mean our behaviors and actions. We're our DNA is very similar, right? And we can't hide those behaviors and actions. We're not random. Everything has a pattern to it, especially with humans. And so advanced situational awareness is about observing, defining those patterns, observing them, and then interpreting them so that you can thrive and survive in that environment. I'll give you a couple examples. Is that okay to, to illustrate? Sure. Yeah, that'd be great. Okay. So... Um, here in Los Angeles, we have the 405 freeway. It's one of the busiest freeways in the world, right? It's always jam-packed with traffic. So I use in my class, I said, I, I show a picture of the 405 freeway with no cars on it. I said, you get on the 405 freeway on a Friday afternoon at five o'clock and it looks like this, there's no cars. I said, is that an anomaly for the baseline environment of the 405 freeway at five o'clock on a Friday? Of course, the answer is yes. So I said, now using your advanced situational awareness, you go through the question, what is the most logical reason I may be seeing this? 
and people come up with a bunch of things. There's been an earthquake. Uh, there's a riot. There's a police activity on the freeway, and they've sealed it off. A VIP motorcade is coming through, right? There's fires on the hillsides, like it happens a lot here in Southern California. Okay, great. Now, the second question, what is the worst case scenario this may be happening? Now, some of those answers may be the same answers. There's police activity. There's a bomb threat. There's been some sort of attack on this part of the freeway, right? You ask yourself the two questions, you answer them in your head, and then you decide on your course of action. Score, I'm going to get on the freeway and I'm going to get home early tonight. Or I'm going to pull off and turn on the radio or check my phone and see if I can find out if there's any news what's happening. So it's all based on the individual and there's no right or wrong answers. We just want people to go through that process of noticing the anomalies and the baseline around them and then asking themselves, why are, why are we seeing this or experiencing this anomaly? How important do you think it is, especially for people that travel a lot? And I think this is where I find a lot of uh, commonality where people will travel to certain parts of the world. Um, it's one thing getting on the ground and having situational awareness, but there's also a part of it that you need to pre-plan. And it, I think there's an important aspect there to know what is actually happening there before you actually get to that place in the world. And I think most people just don't even give it a, give it a second notice. Yes, I agree. And, and, and a lot of that's based on what are the local cultures, customs and practices in the area that you're going to, you know, on Thursdays, does everyone close up and, and go home? On Fridays, as you know, in Islamic lands, Islamic lands, it's their big uh, day to go to the mosque. And then the five times call of prayer during the day for Muslim countries, people are going to close up their shops. And they're gonna, if you don't know those things, that would look very unusual to you. And of course, every country or region has their different cultures and customs. For me, if I'm going to an area I've never been before, I'm getting online and I'm looking at legitimate sources of what's going on in that country. What is their culture? What are their customs? Some of the things that will alert me to help me establish those baseline environments, including getting in and out of the country. What are the procedures at their airport? Are they any different than other airports? What about taxis? How do I get from the airport to the hotel? Do they have taxis? Is there light rail? I'm researching all of that before I go to an area I've never been to before. What are the laws? Are there any particular laws? For example, in Indonesia, you know, if you get caught with alcohol or pornography, it's going to be a very stiff sentence, right? So you kind of need to know those things before you go. And all part of being situationally aware is doing that prep work before you travel. Let's say a person's in a situation, something does happen, potentially maybe a terrorist attack, they're in an airport, a bomb goes off. What should be their first things that they should focus on and do? Because I think what most people would end up doing if they don't think about this beforehand and at least go through some scenarios to plan in a worst case scenario, what will typically happen is they will move in the direction that everybody else is going. And that's probably a really bad idea. Yeah. And so, look, this is all part of, of the brain chemistry of advanced situational awareness too, right? So what are we as humans hardwired to do? Our very first reaction when faced with dangers, and this goes back to evolution, right? Is we're gonna freeze because movement attracts attention, right? It attracts attention of the predator or the hunter. So a lot of people will freeze at the moment of danger if they have not pre-thought out what they're gonna do. What's our second reaction? Flight. If freezing doesn't work, we're gonna run away from the danger. And then finally, the third reaction is if cornered, we're gonna fight. 
So like for military special operations, as you know, the training is all geared to reversing that. Like you're going to run towards the sound of danger. You're, you know, you're going to advance that. So they have to rewire the human brain. Most people in an emergency situation will freeze and do nothing. Or as you say, once people start moving in one direction, they'll just blindly follow. To me, I try to, and this is part of being perceptually aware of if I'm in a movie theater, if I'm in public, if I'm in a plane, if I'm in a hotel in a strange place, what am I going to do if the fire alarm sounds? I will actually go out of my hotel room and walk the fire escape route and see where it dumps out in the hotel. Are all the doors open? Um, if I have to crawl along the floor because there's smoke, how many doors do I have to go down to get to the exit, right? Um, I will... Uh, think about the things before. And if I'm in a theater, I'm seated with my wife, I'm seated near an exit. And I'm thinking if, if an active shooter comes in, this is the direction I'm going. I've already thought about that. It's not a paranoid way of thinking. It only takes a couple of seconds each time you're in a new situation just to think if something happens, what am I going to do? Here in Southern California, it's most likely and it has been earthquakes. If I'm in this tall building, if I'm shopping, what am I going to do when the earthquake hits? And you're exactly right, Rodney, as you said, if you've already thought about it just a little bit, when that time comes, you're probably not going to freeze and you're going to be a little quicker to take action and might save you. I love your example about the fire escape because I mention this quite a lot when I'm teaching. You know, people going to hotels, they just check in and, and they think everything's fine. And I, and I always ask them, I say, do you actually check to see if the fire escape is actually working? Because right. interestingly, I've been in hotels where the fire escape is not accessible. Either it's been locked the door for some odd reason, or there are obstacles in the way, and you're never gonna know that until you actually go and check it. And, and how much time does that take? 60 seconds to go and find that out? It's not a big deal, right? Yep, not a big deal. And, and I tell people, and I think you do the same thing, it gives you a sense of empowerment. It gives you a sense of confidence, and this is all about, you know, we're all, you're all about empowering people. Uh, from what I know about you, it, it gives you that. All right, if something happens, I know I walk the route, I'm going to get out of here. You know, if something happens, I'm going this way. And that's a great sense to have to feel empowered. Whoever you are, whether you're a young, fit man, you're an older lady, you're a female, um, we have a lot of, of females that take our courses. It's empowering to them to have those tools. And they're all locked right here in our mind. It's like we've been given this incredible capacity to use logic and reason to navigate situations and circumstances we're in. And that gives us unthinkable power if we can harness that, not only to alter our circumstances for the positive, but to alter other people's circumstances for the positive. And that's really, I think, the key here to kind of my way of thinking with the advanced situational awareness, with kind of critical thinking skills and stoic philosophy. These are all mental things, not necessarily a physical thing although those are important skill sets as well. I find a lot of people that don't measure up in my old profession of intelligence work or counterterrorism work, it wasn't because of physical attributes, it was because they lacked mental discipline. So that leads really nicely into our second point where we want to talk about critical thinking skills and common sense street smarts. How are those connected? And what does that actually mean? Because you know, oftentimes people come on and they talk about critical thinking skills, but what I tend to find sometimes is they find it quite difficult to explain what that actually is and how would you actually develop it? Yeah. So I use this a lot. So I'm really blessed 
to be able, and I'm humbled to be able to train some of our special operations forces. And I, and I, I use this with them a lot. So to me, Rodney, critical thinking means two things. One, very simple, that you're able to see both sides of a situation, that you're effectively, if you believe in A, that at least you can try to put yourself in the shoes of B and, and see what that feels like. And obviously in our country today, we lack a lot of that. And, and I really don't think our educational system is geared towards teaching critical thinking skills. I've kind of had to teach my three kids you know, independently how to critically think. So that ability to see both sides of an issue and at least acknowledge that your viewpoint is not the only viewpoint. You, you may be very passionate about your viewpoint, but there are other viewpoints and at least being able to acknowledge and explore those, that's part of critical thinking. And again, that's not done a lot. The other part of it would be what I call let's think things through, okay? Um, so I'll give you a very, very kind of, uh, practical example. A lot of what we talk about in human intelligence is communications plans that we have with our assets, our sources, right? And of course, we're meeting them secretly. We don't want anybody to know about that. So the way we communicate with our, with our human sources, we have to develop a plan that no one else can find out about that's secret, it's clandestine. But in doing that, we come up with these convoluted things involving phones and leaving marks on walls and electronic dead drops. And then, so I tell the guys that are doing this, I'm like, wait a second. If you brief this combo plan to me, an experienced intelligence officer, I'm not gonna remember it. I'm gonna have to write it down and take notes. So why do you think you can brief that to some Afghan tribal guy in the middle of Afghanistan or some tribal member in Africa that's supplying you information, not gonna remember it, think this through. Mm -hmm. Give him something simple to remember. It doesn't have to adhere to all the rules and regulations that we have about communications plans. And, and so that's another part of critical thinking, right, is think things through. Does this make sense if you think this through to its conclusion? So those would be the two parts of critical thinking. Common sense and street smarts is, is what it says it is. I think you gotta have one to have the other. I've met a lot of people in my profession that don't have a high IQ. I'm talking about some of the sources or assets that helped us out over the years, but they had tremendous common sense and street smarts. And to me, that's actually even more valuable than a pure high IQ. So, and I know you know, you've run across people like this, usually in academics, they're super smart, but you get them out on the street and they're just clueless about their surroundings and they're going to be a victim of a crime or pickpocket or they're going to fall victim to a scam or something, right? Because they lack common sense and street smarts. So you usually find that by people who have been on the streets a lot and have a lot of life experience. Um, I don't think you can teach that. I think you either have it or you don't. Yeah, I think life experience is a big part of it. I'm just thinking while you were saying that and I've worked closely with uh, a lot of members from different airlines, the cabin crew, and they go to places in the world that are nothing like the place that they come from. So let's use an example, right? Let's say you are brought up and you live in Singapore. It is so different to being on the streets of Johannesburg. Yeah. But they're unable to change their mindset. And I think that's part of the critical thinking too, is that they just assume that the way that they are in Singapore and the way that life is for them, that that's going to be exactly the same when they go to Johannesburg. And what they value is going to be equally valued in another part of the world only then to have a rude awakening. Yes, that's exactly right. And that's a lack of not only critical thinking, 
and street smarts, but that's a lack of situational awareness as well of all three. So I was just also, while you were talking about all this and coming back to the aspect of, you know, we evolutionally prime to do certain things. What is your take on this idea, this concept of amygdala hijack, which tends to happen when people are in extreme stressful situations? Have you ever heard that term? I mean, what is, what is your thoughts on that? So, yeah, like the overloading of the amygdala. To me, to me, for me, the important part of the amygdala is everyone's going to be different how their amygdala reacts, right? But evolutionary speaking, it was put there to protect our human bodies. And it's constantly sampling the environment, as you know, 24-7, even when we're sleeping, through all our five senses, right? I think the problem, Rodney, that people say is they ignore the warning signs in their amygdala. And then an event happens and you get this sensory overload and, and they freeze, right? They freeze. I had so many numerous examples, and I didn't really even realize this till much later in my career as a CIA operations officer, that my amygdala was already working for me. I'll give you a couple of clear examples. Mm. We were, uh, I was, one of my first tours, I was in Lima, Peru, and there was some really pretty, two pretty active insurgent terrorist groups, and they were attacking Americans, and we were actually allowed to be armed there, which is one of the few places in the world at that time, back in the, in the late 80s, early 90s. But we were up hiking with a group of another Americans in the mountains, and we were unable to take our weapons with us. And there was probably about five or six of us Americans, a couple of females with us. And I noticed, again, using advanced situational awareness, one of the things you talk about is geographics, like how people create patterns moving about either an urban or rural environment. We were obviously in a very rural environment. But I noticed like these 12 young men, local men, walking down a trail behind us, right? And you could just tell my situational awareness was up. I was kind of the only ones that saw them because my amygdala had been going off. It, it, it was making me feel uneasy and made me look around. So when I spotted these men, I alerted the rest of the group who had not been aware of them, right? And I said, hey, we need to send a message because this could get ugly really fast. I think they're going to plan on doing something violent, right? So I said to all the, the six group members with me, I go, as you're walking, slowly pick up the largest rock that you can carry. And so we all did. And as we all had a nice rock, big rock in our hand, I looked back at the guys, kind of send a message. And then they slowly drifted back down the trail, right? They didn't confront us. But that was my amygdala signaling to me something's wrong. Without me ignoring it and allowing the situation to happen, which probably would have been amygdala hijack and frozen me, right? Because so much was happening. Uh, another time, Again, I didn't even realize that I didn't pay attention to it, Rodney. Where I was in the middle of downtown Lima, middle of the day, you know, multi-million person city, lots of sounds and noises, right, as you can imagine. I had just walked out of uh, the USAID building, which is an official U.S. government building in Lima, and right across this busy street was the U.S. ambassador's residence. So as I walked out in the middle of the day, in the middle of a work day, I remember thinking, I can still remember it, Rodney, I'm like, it's dead quiet right now. I can't hear a thing. And yet I could see all the people in the cars around me. It's like, that's really weird. So I get in my car and I start driving away. And about 30 seconds later, a massive terrorist car bomb goes off against the U.S. ambassador's residence, blows the crap out of it, unfortunately kills a bunch of guards. The ambassador and his family weren't home, thank God. But when I look back at that, I said, that was my amygdala signaling me. Something has changed in the environment around you you better take notice. 
And so I think a lot of people, you know, we call that your gut instinct, your spidey sense, the hairs on the back of your neck, right? Uh, that feel that funny feeling in your stomach. People don't understand that there's brain chemistry behind that and that they should trust those instincts and look around and be more aware and perhaps be ready to take action. I know that, sorry, that's a long answer to your amygdala. No, 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 it's a great, it's a great answer. I was but thinking, I don't think we use it enough and I, and I don't think we harness the power of that amygdala enough. Yeah, so that, that was interesting because as you were saying that, I was thinking about, I don't know if you do, but I get kind of, kind of addicted at times, you know, watching crime and investigation network. And oftentimes they have victims that are reporting crimes that were perpetrated against them. And if you listen very carefully, they will often say more times than not, oh, I had this kind of sense, this funny feeling that something wasn't right, but then I just didn't listen. I thought, oh, you know, you kind of being silly. And I just went on with what I was doing only to find out that actually there was a problem. So there seems to be this thing in the, in the modern world where people are so disconnected from their primal self, if we can call it that, that they no longer understand that spidey sense and they don't trust that intuitive sense that is coming from the internal state that's telling them, hold on, there's something not right here. And then they just ignore it and then there's a consequence to that. Yeah, you're absolutely right on. And I'm glad you mentioned intuition, which is another component of this. People ignore intuition. And uh, one of my colleagues in the agency came up with a great definition. He said, intuition is a documentable set of experience and observation and maturity in a very senior person, whether it's a senior police officer, a senior intelligence officer, senior military officer, a guy, a businessman that's been in business for 30 years. They have been through a lot of life experience in, this, in these sectors, whether it's business or military or police work. And they have intuition based on that. So the more experience they have, probably their intuition is going to be a lot better at predicting what's currently happening or the future because they have all this life experience to base it on. And a lot of times we ignore, like you say, that intuition, you know, but the military's figured it out, right? The brand new, you know, scrub behind the ears lieutenant who's an officer and went to college. If he's smart, he's going to defer to his sergeant who didn't go to college who's been in for 25 years because that sergeant knows a hell of a lot more and has better intuition about what they're doing compared to the guy that allegedly has the higher IQ and better education. Right. Mm -hmm. So I agree this whole amygdala thing and that situational awareness and intuition, we ignore those at our own peril. And if people could just stop, start learning to recognize their own body, helping them out, they'd be a lot better off in this world. And this comes back to what you were saying earlier, right? Let's say a person, you know, they don't have that experience. They're not necessarily brought up in a rough part of the world. They don't have military background or law enforcement and so forth. Part of them learning to trust their intuition is by applying situational awareness. Because as you noted, you don't have to be paranoid. It's not something that you have to focus on all the time, but you at least have to apply it as you, especially when you find yourself in new environments. And each time you do that, even if nothing happens, you are building that repertoire, that confidence that will allow you in the future to draw from that. And so when there is that alarm, when you feel that spidey sense, you're going to be more inclined to actually believe it and act upon it. Absolutely. And, and you know, it's, it's, there's different domains of situational awareness. You know, I talked about geographics. There's proxemics, the distance between people. You and I could look at a group of people that we don't even know. We don't 
even know what culture or where they're from. And just by the distances between them, we can make a pretty reasonable assessment of how well they know each other or who might be the leader in that group. Well, that's valuable in certain environments as you're walking around, right? Observing the environment. The atmospherics is a big part of advanced situational learning. What are the slogans, the graffiti on walls, the political signs on someone's car or their bumper stickers, a t-shirt that has an emblem or a picture or a saying on it. That's all telling you something about that person that you can interpret. That's free. That, you know, there's so many examples. Unfortunately, uh, a lot in terrorism, there was a Jewish man that was attacked in Europe uh, a couple of years ago on the streets in France. And he was walking down the street and he had his Jewish kippah on. So he's obviously a Jewish man. And he sees four or five young guys coming towards him, but still a bit away. They're also on foot. And he notices one of them has a T-shirt on with a big black flag on it. Well, it happened to be an ISIS flag, which is very recognizable if you know what it looks like. And he allowed them to come all the way up to him, start engaging him in conversation, after which they pulled out a knife and they started stabbing him. He survived. But just think if that guy would have had a situational awareness turned on and said, hey, I recognize that. That's an Islamic State flag on that guy. I'm going to turn the corner and go the other way. Just simple stuff like that of not noticing what's going on around us. There's the famous one here in America of Timothy McVeigh who bombed the Oklahoma City building. After he bombed the building and killed all those innocent people, including a lot of young kids, he was, he was driving out of state and he was actually pulled over uh, for speeding by an Oklahoma State trooper. And they had no idea that he had just perpetrated this bombing. But the T-shirt that he wore that day, and there's a picture of him once they arrested him for the speeding ticket, had a picture of Abraham Lincoln on front of it and the phrase, Six Semper Tyrannus, which means, thus to all tyrants. And on the back of it was a quote from Thomas Jefferson that the tree of liberty must be refreshed by the blood of patriots from time to time. Now, I'm not saying you see Timothy McVeigh walking on the street before he bombs Oklahoma City, that based on that T-shirt, you're gonna, you can tell he's going to carry out a terrorist act. But what I am saying is I could see Timothy McVeigh walking on that street with that t-shirt and say, I have a pretty good idea of what this guy's political beliefs are. Mm. And that's valuable in some situations. So is there's a lot of stuff in advanced situational awareness and the amygdala and the intuition as you've been talking about that people really don't effectively utilize to their abilities. And we've been blessed with them. You don't have to buy them. You don't have to go out and get them they're all right inside our bodies. I think there's also this attitude of people feeling that they don't need to change their behavior or they have the sense that the world should be a safe place. And why should I change the way that I do things? I should be able to just walk around freely and not have anybody harass me. And in an ideal world, that's great. But my example to that was I was in Bangkok and I was walking down the street and I saw in the distance a group of guys who were really rowdy. They had alcohol. They were pushing and shoving each other. My first reaction is that doesn't look right. That potentially has, you know, could morph into a problem. And I was watching a lady just walk and she saw that. And instead of walking to the other side of the road, which is what I would have done, she just continued to walk through them. And in the process of doing that, one of the guys ended up hitting her. So, Again, she's noticing clearly that there's a problem there. She must have some kind of sense that that doesn't look right, but her attitude, her mindset is unwilling to change. I don't know why she didn't step to the other side of the road, 
but more than likely she feels that, well, wherever I come from, everything is fine and everybody is you know, great and there's no such thing as violence typically. So why do I need to change my behavior, right? Yeah, and unfortunately you see it a lot too. Those naive people, again, got their heads down. They're not correctly interpreting the environment. They don't even have their situational awareness turned on, right? And I kind of look at that and this is not like in a, in a, in a, you know, in a, in a, in a proud or boastful way. I kind of look at that. It's guys like us and people that are listening to your podcast. It's kind of our job to try to look out for people like that in our society, because we really are the shepherds, right? And we're the ones out there that are looking around and being situational aware for ourselves and for our families. But at the same time, we can look out for other people as well. And there's a lot of those people out there that are getting into situations that they just haven't seen or they're just stumbling into. And uh, usually it's not a great outcome. So let's pivot to our third point. Let's talk about a stoic based philosophy in life that allows you to focus on what's truly important. So I'm really interested to hear your take on this because I'm a big fan of stoicism. So we share a common interest here. So that's great. Yeah, no, I just got turned on to it later in life again. And I, I think I've kind of been practicing it already. But to me, stoicism, uh, you know, you, you read Seneca and Marcus Aurelius and stuff. I mean, those guys, to me, stoicism is you only can worry about what you can control. That's really the core to me. And I know it's super hard. And I talk to my wife and my kids about this all the time, right? It does no good to worry about things that are absolutely beyond your control. It does no good because you're not going to have, you're not going to be able to affect them. And I know that's super easy to say and it's hard to do. I totally understand that. I've been blessed with that ability, maybe just to shut things off. I had to deal with a bad medical condition a couple of years ago and I dealt with it better than anybody else in my family. And I'm the one that had it. Right. But that was part of my stoic philosophy. I can only can control what I can control. I can eat right. I can exercise. I can, I can stretch. I can get rid of the stress of my life. That's my ways of battling this disease. Everything beyond that is beyond my control. So stoicism, it kind of goes hand in foot with these other advanced situational awareness. You, you, you only can control what you can control, but do that well. I mean, do those things well. I mean, to me, it's about controlling your perceptions, right? You got to control your perceptions, directing whatever action you do properly, and willingly accepting that there are things outside your control. And that to me is kind of the core of stoicism. I'd be interested in your viewpoint along with, I mean, if you look at Marcus Aurelius and all those guys, they did a lot of self-introspection. And I think that is one of the keys to being a successful individual in any field. If you have the ability to look within yourself and honestly evaluate yourself, your strengths and your weaknesses, your flaws and your good traits, you will almost be guaranteed to be successful in anything. I, I stand by that wholeheartedly because one, it lets you know we're not perfect. Everyone is flawed. Everyone that's a human being is flawed. And if you can understand that about yourself, then you can easily see that in others. And that's value to you when you interact with those people, right? If you can see the flaws in their strength, that's value to you. But more importantly, it lets you become a better person. If you can see those weaknesses and correct them, if you can see those bad traits and correct them. And I don't think, Rodney, a lot of people do that. I mean, again, I'm interested in your, your perspective on that. Well, I'm in agreement with you. I think the thing that stoicism stands for me is exactly what you've noted. 
It's this idea of looking within yourself, being self-aware, noticing as you noted, what are my strengths? What are my weaknesses? What am I good at? What am I not so good at? And that awareness, I think, grounds you and makes you more real. I think a lot of people tend to either A, be on autopilot, so they're never taking any notice of themselves and how they interact with situations, or they have an illusion of grandeur and they believe that they're really good at something when they're not. I mean, my perfect example of that is I'm in the world of personal threat management and, and obviously part of that is martial arts and, and so on. And if I go onto YouTube, there are a lot of people on there teaching, claiming to have skills that when I watch it, they clearly don't have, but they really believe that. And that is not a strength. That is a weakness. And that is the very thing if you start talking about applying that into a self-preservation environment that's going to get you killed. I, I, yeah, totally agree. And it, it's very dangerous that, that, that illusion of grandeur, that failure to admit weakness is super dangerous in a lot of situations. I think the part of the, the thing is, right, the reason why people don't want to admit that they're weak at something is because the, the ego kicks in, right? And there's that ego defense going on. And so it's much easier to believe something that isn't real than actually interact with the part that is real because that takes hard work. I mean, as you were noting, you know, Marcus Aurelius and many of the other Stoic philosophers were very much about self-reflection. And that self-reflection isn't a comfortable experience. It's uncomfortable. But we also in a world where people no longer want to feel discomfort. They don't want to feel that, 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 that rawness of what it really means to basically go inside and find what actually you need to find. It's easier just to avoid it. Yeah, That's, <laughs> I'm laughing because of like, are you talking about our millennial generation who wants to <laughs> erase the more uh, distasteful past of our history? I'd be mad when my kids say that to me. I'm like, look, honey, you don't understand it. It's like, you know, do you really want to, because they've been to like some of the concentration camps in, in Europe and stuff. Those are important. Confederate statues, slavery, concentration camps, the genocides that have been carried out in the world, the horrible wars. All those, as tragic and horrible as they are, we have to study them. We have to remember them for the plain fact of not wanting to repeat those again. If we erase all of that, then three generations from now, they're not even going to know what happened. And they're going to fall into those same traps again. So for that reason alone, we need to you know, stop this craziness of erasing history or making it more palatable or because it's uncomfortable to us. I want to be uncomfortable. I want to be pissed off at the injustice in the world. I want to have my heart broken over things that have happened in the past and hundreds and thousands of people have been killed. That drives you. That motivates you to do what you do better and to make this a better place. I want to have that constantly as a thorn in my side to, to spur me on further. And I think all true professionals kind of believe that. If everything was perfect, you know, what are we here for, right? Yeah, absolutely. So out of all the Stoic philosophers, who would you say is your favorite? I, I really like Marcus Aurelius because of that self-awareness. Uh, Seneca would probably be number two. Um, I just found, you know, here's a great man, a rich man, very powerful man for his time. Yet, like you said, you know, he was on the, he was the top 1%. You know, talk about one percenters. Mm -hmm. He was the, yet he had that ability to look inside himself and realize that he was flawed and realize his weakness and to articulate that in a very beautiful way in the way he wrote to give us lessons for the future, right? Um, although he's not a Stoic philosopher, Winston Churchill was very much, 
about looking into the past and drawing lessons from it as well. And if you really look at Churchill, who is another favorite of mine, you know, he had all his faults, many faults, like all of us. He was such a student of history that he was able to take those lessons, even from thousands of years ago, like the Peloponnesian Wars, and apply them to modern day problems. Because everything that is going to happen has already happened in some part right, of history. And that's what made him just such an awesome statesman. And again, that's another one of those kind of self-reflection, self-awareness. Along with that, I believe you got to be reading, you got to be learning all the time. I don't care how old you are, if you're in the game, if you're out of the game. I'm out of the intelligence game full time in the contract, but I'm still have my toe in it. I'm reading all the time. I'm talking to people like you or other people all the time. I'm I'm getting all this information because you'll never know enough, and things evolve, and you always got to be learning. I tell even when I'm an instructor in a class, I always challenge the class and say. I better learn a couple of things from you guys today. Don't just sit there and think you're learning from me. I want to learn something from you guys with your input because we can learn something from almost anybody we come into contact to. I truly believe that. So for a lot of young officers in intelligence work or the military, I always tell them, stay up on your reading and your education. Be really aggressive about that. And I think that kind of feeds into the stoic philosophy of always enriching your mind and trying to make yourself better. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even Marcus Aurelius in the meditations, in the opening lines, he reflects back on the lessons that he had learned from others. Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. So coming to the end of this podcast, Bob, what I want you to do is give everybody some parting thoughts. Just what, we, what do you think is something that you kind of want to leave everybody with as they, they come to the end of this, of this interview? That's a good question. Yeah, be, be your self-reliant person, okay? Thrive, survive in an environment. You want to be that person. That, that encompasses physically being in good shape and in good health. That encompasses getting enough rest. That encompasses doing fun things in your life. That encompasses being absolutely mentally disciplined and expanding your mind and learning as much as possible. That encompasses incorporating all of that into a holistic view of life that you're doing all those things. And I use the term Renaissance man, right? You want to know a lot about what's going on. Be know a lot about arts and culture and, and special operations and law enforcement and maybe some uh, martial arts and weapons skills and situational awareness skills, but also be that person that can help read other people so that you can be empathetic with other people as well and have those interpersonal skills. That to me is, is the Renaissance man or the Renaissance person. One of the only other kind of philosophies or, or kind of things that I follow, there was a, uh, a U.S. military guy named Dakota Meyer who's a Medal of Honor winner, and he founded this thing called Own the Dash. And I like how he put it. And Own the Dash means there's two of, and this fits into Stoic philosophy, there's two events in your life that you absolutely do not control, your birth and your death. And on your tombstone, there'll be a date and a date separated by a dash. But everything in between is totally up to you. That's your legacy. That's you making yourself a better person. That's you impacting this world in some way, whether it's your friends, your family, your spouse, or other people. Own that dash. That is ours. That is our gift. There is no excuse to waste or squander that. So I really kind of, if I had to leave anybody with parting words, it would be that. 
To learn more about the art of self-reliance, our virtual coaching service, online courses, and our retreats in Thailand, head over to Primal Skills. That's with a Z.com.